Any views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and not of their employer. Okay, welcome to Abn Abn Podcast, episode 99, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Stuart. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about Terraform modules. We talk about public and private endpoints. Talk about what we've been up to in the past few months. And we also have some exciting news about our next show. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the episode. So, what, it's been quite long, we've all been on the same podcast at once, so how is everybody and what have you been up to? Do you want to go first, John? Yeah, hey, sure. So, at my place of work, uh, I have uh, recently taken and passed an AWS certification, uh, the AWS Security Specialist, which was very interesting. If you are at all interested in the security of one of the major cloud providers, that's a, a good exam to take. I would strongly recommend it, if only uh, as as to to find as as I did when I did my exam that there are whole blocks of uh, of material that I had absolutely no idea about, which is good. I still managed to pass, so I did all right. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. What else have I been up to? Meetings, lots more in person meetings. So obviously, I, I changed roles uh, about a year ago, uh, and when I changed jobs, they sort of said to me, "Oh, it's." height of the pandemic you know you're not going to be going to meetings much but uh as and when things change we'll, we'll start expecting to see you sort of on site at customer things more often and i kind of thought all oh, right okay you know once or twice a month at most oh no oh no it's got to the point now that my daughter keeps saying to me daddy you're always in london now like no i'm not it's just because i go down one night and i come back the next night you know you just don't see me it's just that's all it but yeah so uh, lots more meetings i don't know about if that's been the same with uh, with anyone else but yes lots lots more meetings no we change contracts so we work from home permanently now so yeah, we actually went into we actually went into the office for once the other day because I I'll go in my next things that um yeah that we went into the office because we're just doing this whole SRE thing um which is really good we were just getting thank you for that podcast again for the couple of episodes I don't think I you were on it um, when I said thank you John for getting your colleague in it's really good we had a kind of a whiteboard session because uh, we're dipping in the classic monitoring of VMs and stuff, not really monitoring anything of our power solutions. And we just want to be more kind of proactive. So we, um, I'm just leading that piece of work. So I want to get everyone in the kind of a room and then like just write on the whiteboard what we wanted to monitor, what we think we should be monitoring and how we kind of getting, getting monitoring. So yeah, that's kind of been what I've been up to with my, uh, and now we're kind of like split it into the four pillars and then we're going to start kind of looking at each of those pillars and seeing how we can implement that into our into our technology basically yeah i, I suppose on the point of going into office uh, offices more well i've been twice with the current job which is twice more than the past two jobs um <laughs> so yeah there's an increase there but to be fair they were three months apart and i've not been since august so yeah it's um it, it, it's still more than i'm used to nowadays but you know it's it's all right um, but yeah, in terms of what I've been up to, um, yeah, I changed jobs back in April um, to where I am now, and it's very well. It's it's an SRE team, but with a very high focus on doing SRE. The you know, 
in in some places SRE can mean sysadmin with a different title. It can mean DevOps, where the job title that sorry the job role that I'm in now is very definitely SRE in the original um, thinking of of the term as well. And um, yeah, a lot of what I've been doing is getting um, SLIs and SLOs in place so we can start monitoring things, start actually putting in place things called error budgets, which we've covered on episodes before. But to briefly go into them, SLI is a very simple, um, what are you monitoring? So it could be HTTP error codes, it could be um, a queue length or something like that. The SLO is the objective, so that's what you want to reach. So 99% of the time you want to not return errors. And then an error budget is how um, how much time can you be outside of your objective before you're impacting customer experience. So, yeah, it's very much the focus on that. But as an aside as well, um, the team that I'm on right now has a couple of um, people who have been uh, devs for a long, long time. Um, one of them's been in uh, you know, a developer for about 20 years and has got into DevOps in the past two or three years. Um, so I've been learning a lot from him in terms of um, test-driven development and uh, starting with the test first and then making the code pass and then making it you know, more generic, making it the right way of um, you know, actually doing the job but so it's testable that you know from day one rather than writing the code and then trying to fit the tests around that and sometimes you're missing stuff you're just going well that that i've got a lot of the tests and this is you know almost a guaranteed way of getting 100 percent coverage on your code at that point but yeah it's been an interesting learning experience because yeah I, you know i've kind of alluded to i've come from an infrastructure background and also the idea of starting with a test first was alien to me i couldn't i couldn't get the idea of why would you write your test first you don't know what your code's doing yet the idea is your test is supposed to say what your code's supposed to do and then you make your code do that um so yeah it's as i say very interesting approach it's really nice having a developer in your team because i've been doing kind of a bit of um a side project on my side just learning a bit about dotnet and doing a little crud database thing we talked about it in the past with i think in uh, which is basically the uh, create uh, read update into the kind of thing so mm-hmm. the website and one of the couple of developers in my team now, and yeah, if you get a problem, you can kind of because I was one like you, we said it before, like you only know what you know, isn't it, kind of thing. And I was like hitting my head against the wall because I was trying to per, uh, do a query and I couldn't work the query out. And I got this query into into a list. I was trying to get this query, but the guy said, "Well, you got it into a list. Why don't you just filter your your results in the list?" And I went, "Oh yeah, why didn't I think of that kind of thing?" <laughs> Sometimes it's just another pair of eyes, isn't it? You know, you can be looking at something for days and they just go, it's just there. Oh, yeah, of course, I've been missing that missing semicolon or something. And then, like, he came to me the other day because he couldn't work out something on, on Azure front door. Like, he's going, why can't I get this to work? It's not working. And, like, I spent an hour looking at it and fixed it kind of thing. He's going, well, I didn't think about doing it that way kind of mm-hmm. thing, isn't it? So. So there's a, there's an interesting term for uh, that, that kind of thing that Stu just described there where um, – you you bring someone fresh into the conversation who, who's got a separate set of eyes on it. Yeah. If you haven't got that extra set of, set of eyes, um, there's a, a a phrase that you might come across called which is rubber ducking, mm. um, which is where if you are say for example like like most of us are I think, I think we all are if you're working from home, so you don't have somebody that you can bring in with those second set of eyes. What you can do instead is um, find uh, you know 
it's it's typically class you know people will typically refer to a rubber duck but you could have any sort of toy or even you know random object around the house and you put it in front of you and you describe the problem as though you were describing it to somebody that you've that have never worked on that field before yeah and quite often by breaking things right down to the very basics and stepping back up you can get to the problem without actually ever having to explain you know without getting to the point of explaining where it is because it makes your brain think about things differently yeah what i have found though is that my wife has discovered this term and she refers <laughs> to the way that we make decisions in the house as her rubber ducking it against me <laughs> <laughs> which is not great but you know at least i know i'm being you know helpful in in some way I suppose at that point, there's also the problem when someone walks in and just sees you talking to a rubber duck as well. So, you know, a few weird looks every now and then. Well, this is why it's good to work from home, right? <laughs> <laughs> and also as well, thinking about just doing this crud bit, not thing is that I wish to give up really easily about when I get like get to a problem and I couldn't work out. I was just like, oh, I'll give, give it up. But now I've kind of made the thing that actually that working with developers i can see that like they waste low well not waste time but they can spend hours fixing a problem kind of thing so that makes me feel bad that makes me feel good if that makes sense it's like if i i think i spent like half a morning trying to fix this issue i was trying to do one saturday morning and he like fix it in five minutes it's just it's, i think it's good to just walk away isn't it for a bit and then mm. i would find with a problem if i get if i get stuck i was like right that's it go for a walk for an hour or half an hour whatever my lunch break and then come back and it's kind of yeah. I can't remember who told me about this thing. I don't know. It must have been from YouTube. I've watched about it. Saying, "Yeah, you can solve anything. It's just you just got you just got you you, you just got faith in yourself that you can do it." Yeah. I often find uh, just ending the day not not finishing something if you can. You know, oh. if, if you're not under pressure to get it fixed. But I hate that though because I want to because I want to get it finished by the end of the day, kind of thing. Yeah, but then I've I always almost always find when I come in the next morning, it's just within five ten minutes of sitting down or or coming you know typing um i've generally generally solved it yeah it it, you've slept on it you've got a different mindset you're not stuck looking at the same three lines or something you're just going oh yeah of course it's that amount of times you know i'll I'll, you know i'll be just about to go off to sleep and then i'll just go oh it was that wasn't it i'll try that in the morning next thing i know yep wake up put it in yes could it could have saved six hours by just going to sleep sooner i remember when i was writing I want to say it was Campfire Manager, uh, which was a talk scheduling piece of software I wrote for bar camps. Um, and I used to go to bed with like a wadge of paper next to my, next to the side of the bed. And I'd wake up or, you know, just as I was drifting off and I'd kind of have to like lean over the side of the bed and kind of scrawl like in giant letters on the floor. So I actually stood a fighting chance of being able to understand what I was writing in the morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, I end up doing that loads, like, uh, I mean, like seven, eight, nine years ago now. But, you know, you, you'd end up kind of having, like you said, these flashes of inspiration. Oh, it was that thing that would solve this kind of tangential problem. Uh, get, get that stuck in there. Mm. It's kind of even more unconscious than that with me. I, I usually find I, I don't even think about the thing, but then I just come in the next morning and try something that I didn't happen to try the day before. And, and then it works. <laughs> so, mm. It's a bit more subconscious, I suppose. So what have you been up to then, Jerry? Um, I've started yet another job. <laughs> I think I mentioned uh, in the last episode I'd started a, a different job. So that one 
that one finished and another one started. Um, I've been into an office a bit more. Um, they wanted me to come in for onboarding type stuff and, and just to sort of meet the team. So uh, I've been going not up to London, but in the other direction uh, to Pool on the south coast. And yeah, just uh, doing stuff with Kubernetes again and Rancher, which is interesting, something 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 I haven't tried before. Um, and yeah, I'm only in my... Th- tomorrow will be the start of my third week, so it's just sort of getting... finding out what, what they're up to and how how to best help i suppose really um but yes yeah, interesting um and i seem to have already made some you know uh improvements <laughs> and kind of justified my my sort of price tag as it were <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah it's all looking good um I'm, I'm staying over as well which is a new a new thing you know just going over there because it's such a long commute i have to stay overnight um and so yeah that's uh that's kind of how that job looks at the moment. I, I'll report more in the next episode. So um, I've got a couple of things I want to discuss, um, which is really interesting. Is We talked about Terraform before in the past, which is like a way of writing infrastructure as code. Um, I've used it mainly for creating uh, virtual machines. Um, but with, with, with Terraform, you curate, there's a thing called the state file this is what what's basically when you change any code it compares it to what's in the state file and then it will go off and build it if it's different that's correct isn't it the state file it will write it out when you apply it um and it'll, if if well if it doesn't exist it will write it out and then in on subsequent runs uh one should exist uh, the state file should exist and then it subsequent um applies it will compare it so yeah, so you can have that state file either like when you, when you first run it, it will basically it will run it locally on your machine. But obviously, that's not good because you want it somewhere central. So if there's multiple people who are working in your teams, or if you've got it in a pipeline, you've got that you've got that um, somewhere. Normally, like in like a the storage account somewhere. We've started to use it more and more with um, building actually PaaS solutions. But we're getting to this data where we think we need to talk about modules because it, uh, we were just building it and it's getting really, really big. And we're still running it locally from our local machine. So we're just running Terraform commands. So I wanted to kind of ask you guys what your experience are with putting Terraform into a pipeline. Uh, that's like, so you can automate it. So you, And what you think about Terraform modules. So, yeah, in terms of modules, um, I'm all for modules, especially creating themselves for one very simple reason. You can kind of code in partly business logic, partly um, consistency, and partly kind of compliance requirements. So things like, you know, you have certain tags that are required for billing. Um, You have um, certain say a security group in AWS you have certain rules that you always must have like I don't know a good example might be um, you never allow SH inbound from the internet that kind of thing so you you make sure that the default security group that you apply doesn't have that that kind of thing and that can be done from a module all right so you could actually so you could so you could put the tags in the module then basically and then apply the then apply the tag 
that module to the your code potentially or at minimum you can make it so it's a requirement to set them um, okay. so it could be something like you know a good example might be say a product code or it might be a team or it might be you might have something that says you know a i, I, I don't know a, a billing um uh, who who it gets billed to i can't remember the exact name at the moment but yeah so that that kind of thing or a department just any anything that um is potentially useful to have as i say as a requirement um, or as uh, being able to apportion costs for who's creating infrastructure. So, um, again, AWS, they have something called Cost Explorer, at which point you can use that to say, right, what does this cost and separate it by tag? And then you can say, actually, this team's using this much, therefore the costs is going towards them. Let's go make sure their products are actually given us the value, that kind of thing. But also more than anything, just so you can get a good view of what you're doing. But also, as I say, it's creating consistency in um, you know business logic so a good example is a few companies ago um we built a lot using um, amazon's ecs so that's the managed docker rather than managed kubernetes and it was a lot of ecs a lot of using dynamo db so that's aws's um no sql database and always putting a root 53 record um dns entry and a load balancer uh, well adding onto an existing load balancer that we had and that is all almost all of the services were like that so rather than someone creating that the exact same way every single time but may, making a slight changes to it or we put some sort of it better in the new versions that you know potentially adds extra tags or potentially an improvement that reduces costs or just an improvement um, generally you stick in a module um, and then everyone gets that now you do need to version them modules so that people aren't just automatically upgrading and it breaks their code but if you have a good versioning strategy then at that point you can say right okay move to the new version and you will get these benefits move to the new version yes it may break some of these things make sure you test it first but you will get these benefits as well so as I say, for me, modules are, so I'll separate this, the modules bit into two parts. When you're creating your own, I'm a massive fan of it. When you're using Terraform modules on the internet, as in, you know, the generally available ones that might um, say how to create a security group, how to create a, a Kubernetes cluster, that kind of thing. I'm less of a fan of them for the simple reason that they tend to cater to everyone including every single corner case that exists at yeah. which point you try and debug that you'll be there for days right. i i have spent days trying to work out why some of it's not working based upon a community created module and this isn't to say you know don't ever use community uh, modules it's just you've got to take on the idea that they're not always you'll probably simple. only need a, a part of that code a exactly you know 90 percent of people need about 10 percent of what's in their modules it's just for the for the other ones they need the rest of it it's not always the same 10 percent either of, exactly of yeah so are you saying like so let's say you're making a like a web app or something like so mm. a web so you've obviously got the mod you've obviously got the terraform code you can get from which will write that from what you obviously what you get from yeah. But are there other people on the on the internet who actually do wrappers around them as well? Then their own kind of templates. Is that what you say? Kind of. So you'll find people that do um, ones based upon security groups um, or ones based upon um, a Kubernetes cluster or it might, all sorts of ones. So basically, anything you can create. Um, you often have a community supporting module, which gives makes it so that 
in the simplest term, uh, sorry, the simplest ways, you can supply a couple of variables and you'll get the infrastructure rather than having to set out all the little bits in there. Yeah. But then if something doesn't work the way you expect, you can be there for days trying to work out what what it, what the problem is. I've, as I say, the not the a couple of jobs ago the one i was there we basically created most of our own modules because we went right okay we know what we want we've tried using a few of the community modules and half the time they either do so much that we don't need or they work in such an idiosyncratic way that i actually it's harder to use that than it is to just use the direct terraform resources and create it in a file but then the place i was at last they lived by community modules, at which point, yeah, 90% of my time there with Terraform was not creating modules. It was working out what this module was actually doing. And that's that. a lot of the time you wasted more time doing that than creating it yourself in the first place. So, yeah, so, slight beer in my bonnet about community modules, put it that way. <laughs> it can be useful to see how people have done things. Yeah. I, I think that's that's why I go searching for modules, but I don't necessarily use the module but just see see how they've written it. And, I was uh, going to say the same ideas. thing. It's very similar to how I used to use Ansible as well. Uh, so you'd get your kind of public Ansible roles from Galaxy, and quite often you'd get something. At, and Jeff Geerling's um, Ansible modules are a perfect example of this. They would always be written f- to the way that Jeff does stuff, hmm. which is there's nothing wrong with that. But if you haven't structured your Ansible playbook to support what he's done then you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still using a, a, a very, it's very based on Jeff Geerling's Apache 2 module, but it's also diverged quite a lot from it. Yeah. I, I had a similar one with one of his modules one time where it was uh, just to install Node.js and I thought, well, it'd be easy to use his because there's so many steps to it. And then when I realized it only did Debian and CentOS and I also use uh, things like Alpine and OpenBSD on my own infrastructure, I went, the amount of stuff I'm adding to this, I'm just going to do it myself instead. So, yeah, it's it's quite easy to get lost in that. And, yeah, as you say, it's his way of doing things. If your infrastructure is exactly like his, you're golden. Hmm. If you find yourself writing a load of Terraform code, it's worth thinking about sticking it in the module. Because uh, uh, the reason I say that is I, I inherited some Terraform code a few years ago now. And a couple of the bits were in modules. I think it was to do with Palo Alto and F5 firewalls in his year uh, and load balances and firewalls. And um, all that stuff, there was a module for that. I'm not sure if it was a public module or in-house. Or, but the I was working on um, a VM, the VM side and that wasn't in the module and uh, it should have been. But I, I was... If I'd known what I was doing really at that point, I would have, I would have made it into a module, and it would have been easier to deal with, and and sort of pass things out of that module into the Palo Alto module and so on. Um, I think it would have made a lot more sense to to me if I'd done that. Yeah, I I guess probably the golden rule is if you're finding yourself copy and pasting ninety to ninety five percent of what you're doing every single time, it probably belongs in a module of just a few variables to instantiate it rather than. Um, as I say, copy and paste in every single time. Um, mm. Then it makes it. And, you know, the good, go back to again the community versus your own modules. If you've also created that module, it's also quite easy to troubleshoot because you know what you created it for in the first place. So that's also an advantage with that, too. In theory. In theory, yeah. Until you come back six months later and you forget what you did and just go, I don't know how to do it this way anymore. Or The, the one thing that I will say about Terraform modules is that if you are not careful, with what you're doing, 
sometimes what can happen is if you've got hundreds of instructions inside a module and you're calling that module several times with different sets of instructions, what can end up happening is that your, your, your Terraform play, it's not play, your Terraform plan and apply will take very, uh, quite a long time. Mm. And so what you might sometimes want to do rather than just, rather than using modules is think about how your Terraform stuff is structured. And in fact, I think I got this, I thought, I think I got this guidance from uh, none less than, than our own stew. <laughs> so what you should think about doing is if you've got some parts of your infrastructure that always remain the same. So say, for example, you build a VPC or a, a VNet or whatever the terminology is for the platform you're using. And then you are building standard set of subnets and you are building a load balancer. I'm kind of, I'm doing all this off cuff, but <laughs> you know, if you've got like a standard set of infrastructure that you deploy once and then you add things to that. So for example, if you're adding, um, like your, um, if you think about like a three tier application, so you've got your, um, your web renderer, your logic part, so like your PHP or your Node.js. So your, your, your web renderer is your, your Nginx or your Apache or something like that. Your business logic is your, your PHP, your Perl, your Python, your Node, whatever it is. And then your database layer at the back, which would be MySQL, uh, Postgres, whatever. If you wanted to add additional, uh, logic parts, so they were all in separate pieces. What you might do is have your infrastructure as one playbook. So that's your VPC, your subnet, your load balancer. That's one piece. Uh, and your Nginx or your Apache or whatever as, as part of that, as a module as part of that. And maybe your database as part of that. But your actual web application, the, the logic part of it, that may sit in a separate Terraform file yeah. so that all that you're doing is you're adding pieces to that. Uh, so that might mean that you, you might want to have your, your, your Nginx as part of that separate thing. So that it's, um, so you're adding to the config of that rather than necessarily building fresh. But ultimately what I'm saying is just think about how your, Think about the logical pieces. If you've got a piece that's never supposed to change, your VPC, your subnets, for example, or certain parts of that infrastructure, your load balancer, your public keys, your um, certificates, those pieces should never change. They should be in one Terraform file because that reduces your blast radius. So if somebody, if somebody goes in and changes that, you'll see why that they've changed that. You'll see why they've changed that. That's very different to somebody saying, I need to put three new web servers in to, to handle the new piece of traffic that's coming through. It's, it's kind of a state, state file boundary, if you like. Um, mm. So if you separate your states out into almost, you can do it by projects really, because uh, Terraform state file is, uh, on a per folder basis in the code. So if you have a folder full of Terraform files, um, the Terraform state will be limited to that, that directory that those Terraform files are in. 
and 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 the infrastructure that they describe so um yeah so what jo- what john uh, is saying you know you could have your vpc uh public keys and so on in in one directory uh and then call them as data sources i think i think you can with on aws with keys or well, i think there was some limitation around that mm. but uh, but yeah that's that's um a discussion that we we had at my last role actually about where to where to put those boundaries because um i think it was to do with there was a yeah there was a set of supporting infrastructure storage accounts and things like that and then the apps that were being deployed would build their own infrastructure out as as um as they were kind of instantiated yeah, that, that, there's another part to that as well. I think um, I think we're getting into things like data sources and remote states and things like that. So we can say, you know, use a what what we called it when I was um, using this kind of thing uh, a couple of jobs ago was kind of almost like your core modules and then almost like your consumers. Um, so as as we've been saying, something like your VPC, your basic network, your basic possibly default security groups that kind of thing you create that and then the app the stuff that you create doesn't have to recreate something on top of that it just uses it as a source um, and that could be let's say remote state or it can be a data source the other thing that i was going to suggest as well um al is that um we mentioned before about having versions and version control around y- your modules one of the things that you can do with Terraform modules, now to be fair, I've not done this, so I don't know how complicated it becomes at that point, but there's two different ways of describing how to access your modules. You either describe it as a file path, so, you know, uh, path slash to slash module yeah. or, you know, dot dot slash module name A. The other way that you can do it is you can actually refer to a Git repository. Yes, this is what we're doing. So we're looking at tagging all our kind of different modules so that you can then reference them so that if someone changes something, we know that what module it worked on, if that made sense. Yeah, it, it's definitely a good idea going that approach because, yeah, as you say, you can have... The only problem you can get into is some people get stuck on a version, so all these improvements you think you're making, if no one's actually moved to that version, then yeah. you can still end up with a breakage later. But if you've got a good version control policy and you can at least, you know... Almost like give not quite a newsletter, but almost like weekly updates of these are the new improvements that come with this module. If you want to check it out, give it a look, that kind of thing, and potentially over time start you know encouraging people that the older versions are going to go away soon. At which point you need a good deprecation policy. Those are the kind of things you need to think about. Um, but yeah, just just versioning the things so you don't automatically break someone because you you've put a new version out, kind of thing. Yeah, I've just remembered what my point was that I was making before in terms of the whole core modules and um, your core infrastructure and then stuff that sources it. It can mean at that point you can then have a core team that builds all the infrastructure out and then actually the development teams themselves that want to spin up their own infrastructure, spin up stuff that is in a working environment already, don't need to make do need to have access to the uh, where all the core infrastructure is they just need to be able to source it so they can say right okay i need it to come up in this environment i need it to be in these subnets but i don't necessarily need to change the code that does that i just need to use it as a source of my data and then that means that you're in a position where the devops the sre the infrastructure teams are not doing everything they're just building a platform to then be consumed by others at that point yeah this is another um, I think I might might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but you you 
you can then provide the infrastructure as as a um, DevOps or SRE person or platform person. You can provide uh, infrastructure with uh, like a config file. In in the the classic way of doing it is a uh, in the app repo or or the directory if it's a mono repo. Um, you just put like a config file, which could be as as simple as a tfvars file or a Docker Compose uh, f- file or, or, you know, a YAML file or something simple. Um, and the, the developers can put in the values that they need, maybe what kind of database they need. In, and then that feeds into your Terraform modules as variables. And then that builds out the infrastructure that they need for their, for their app. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a kind of, and, and then as the, the infrastructure person, you, you, all you do is write mod- modules because your uh, people are consuming your your modules to build their infrastructure. Yeah, and that, there's almost there's almost an as- aspect of almost you know Lego building at that point. You're building things out of blocks rather than you know having to build it from scratch. You can just go right, okay. Um, I know I need a database. So I'll use the blessed uh, database module that we've been, that we've been using. I can use the blessed. Um, Kubernetes pod or what, whatever it is at that point. Oh, and then you're using well-vetted, well-known code that's known to the people within the company. And they can, you know, if there's any problems, you can go to them with it. But as long as it's working, you know, I'm to think, how do I even start building a database that's got all these extra subnets, that's got all these parameters in there? I can just say, right, I want a MySQL database that just works. Um, at which point I'll use the module that does it. And it's, it's that kind of thing. It, it turns the infrastructure more into just this, plug this in, plug this in, I've got it. And going back to the the Terraform, kind of the modules and root modules, is there a way of do you thinking that it should be like module heavy or root module heavy kind of thing? Or is it... um, when you say root module, are you meaning just the directory that everything's in? Yeah. Yeah, so... I, I guess it depends on the infrastructure. For me, anything that's re- that you're going to repeat um, often, probably put into modules. Anything that is going to be done once or twice, the amount of time you'll spend putting that into a module is probably less than you'll gain back. So a good example of that might be if you create a module to create DNS records, creating a DNS record in Terraform is usually two or three lines anyway, at which point what's the difference between putting that in a module and not? Yes, potentially tagging and stuff like that, but generally there's a lot. There's some things where creating that module to do that doesn't really solve anything. All you've done is just gone. Everything's a module now. It can be something like um, grabbing a data source in the root module and passing it to multiple sub modules as well. Yeah. So I mean, there's multiple different ways of going about it, but yeah, for me, as I say, anything that's repeatable and you keep copying and pasting probably belongs in a module at that point. I'd say. Yeah, something else to mention here is Terragrunt, which is um, a, terif- a, a wrapper for Terraform, um, and it can be used. In, I think I've again. I think we've been over this before, but um, yeah. Well, I'm on my on my listing to talk about what is Terragrunt because one of my guys was saying, "Have we used PG Terragrunt in the, in the past?" Yeah, well, as I say, it's a wrapper, it's a Terraform wrapper, and the way that I've seen it used is basically to tie modules together. So. You can do things like grab things from further up the directory tree. So I've seen it used a couple of times now um, where you have like a directory structure of something like region, depart, you know, product or department. Um, and then 
you have a, a variables file in each of those directories and it will go up and pull all those variables from the parent directories. You can, you can get, you can grab the output of one module and feed it into another module uh, and that sort of thing. And that's how I've seen it used. Uh, and it, it, in that, the place where it was used, there was also this big emphasis on versioning modules as well. Um, and they were using something called conventional commits to do that. So just a way of, um, prefixing your git commits so that it gives us, it basically gives a sensible change log and it will do automatically. It was integrated with something else, which bumped the version and, and tags and, and so on to, so you got proper versioning. So yeah, maybe we'll go into that uh, separately. Mm. There's also something with Telegram where it can um, apply across multiple directories. So where we've been saying to try and split it across directories, there might be times where you want to do that. A good example might be actually you know that the subnets are changing or your VPC infrastructure, you're adding more to it. Or just something changes that a lot lot of modules, uh, sorry, a lot of infrastructure relies on. At which point if you make a change at the root... But you haven't applied that to to any of the other ones. That change happens. They don't know about it. Everything breaks. If mm-hmm. you use Terragon, it can apply across all of it. At which point, any changes that are in the root, uh, again, like I say, you know, maybe you're adding an extra subnet, maybe you're deleting one, maybe you're changing a security group or your default one. You want that to be across all modules. It changes there, and then also um, them them changes that are applied. Um, for anything that's sourcing that data rather than having to uh, additionally apply it in multiple different places. Because, yeah, I've, I've done it in the past where I've made one change and then just gone, oh, yeah, there's three things relying on this. I need to go do it there. Terragrunt can solve that as well. Yeah, I haven't used it in the past, but I need to look into it. I'm just wondering, guys, if you've used it or not. Mm. I, I suppose one thing as well, we've not really covered the pipeline aspect of it as well. Yeah, that's my last kind of thing is like, what? how do you how how you guys kind of like used it in the pipeline kind of thing what do you do do you do it like when you do a pr into the into the so let's say you had an environment in which you're creating with terraform not the modules kind of thing but kind of the more like if you're creating a your this thing you're creating with like your database and your uh, i don't know your web app or whatever how do you kind of have you dealt with that like when you make changes doing it into like in depending on what your 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 source control tree looks like yeah so going to i mean the way i tend to manage git and i think a fair few other people do is the what's live should be what's in the main branch and then you create a branch for what you propose to make changes with so I don't mean live in terms of that's production. I mean live in terms of that's what's running right now, regardless of whether it's in a testing environment or something like that. I don't tend to like the develop branches that then get um, pushed into testing and then a separate production branch that goes into production because you tend to get divergence, I've noticed. So your develop is never the same as your production. There's always differences. Trunk-based development for the win. Exactly, yes. So um, the... Um, how I've worked with it in the past and now have implemented in my own infrastructure at home because um, I've mentioned a couple of episodes about using Git T and Drone. I actually do Terraform um, on a couple of minor things I use like um, my DNS and a couple of VPSs and stuff like that. I also do that in pipelines now as well rather than managing it locally. And yeah, it's it's mostly you create a branch, 
put the changes in you expect to see um if you want to plan it locally just to see what's going to happen absolutely fine but i don't tend to apply from a branch and then at that point push the code up to the repository that and then um, create a pull request or a merge request if you're using GitLab. And then at that point, the merge request, sorry, use, I'm using um, GitLab every day at work at the moment, so I'm going to keep swapping terms. Sorry about that. And in there, there will be a potentially a linting in there to make sure you're not, you know, done anything badly with the code and, you know, you've not um, called something, you know, TAWS rather than AWS or something. It just makes sure, you know, you're, you're doing the right things there. If you've implemented something like TerraTest to add additional tests in there, I've not done that before, but I know other people have, so that's potentially an option to include that as part of the pipeline. Um, and then a plan, but no apply. So I can see what the proposed changes are. And then at that point, that's what forms the pull request. Then you can share that around to people and um, they can say, right, what changes are going to happen? This looks fine. This doesn't. Um, or, you know, sometimes it might be actually no changes are made because someone's actually gone and made the changes in the console and you're updating the code to reflect that. Not saying anyone would do that, but a lot of people do that. <laughs> can you get like the output of when you do a plan? Can you put the plan, the output of the plan into the like the PR then? Well, so there's there's some interesting ways of doing that. So GitHub Actions will, when you... Mostly I've been working with GitHub for things like this. But so what you can have is when you do a commit, that sorry, when you do a merge request or a pull request, it will trigger a run of your CICD job. Yeah. And the some of those tests can include doing a Terraform plan. Yeah. So, yeah, so at that point it would show you what the differences are. What you could also do as well is, and this depends especially on kind of the size of the environment you're working with and kind of what the cost tolerances are of your employer and things like that. But what you could do is have it deployed the previous Terraform environment that you had into a dummy account, a, a, a UAT account, and then run your Terraform plan based on the new version against that so that you literally get here is what is day zero and this is what day one does to that yeah and I, I suppose I suppose an additional as well is to get the actual plan into a pull request itself so you can actually literally see it as a comment or something entirely dependent upon the system i know you can do it with GitLab, and it'll actually um, show you a little thing that says how you know how many things are going to change, how many things can be destroyed, and how many are added. Without actually showing the full plan, it just gives a nice little summary. I've definitely seen the same in GitHub as well. In fact, yeah, my last place did that, um, thinking about it, because they were all GitHub-based. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely possible to do that. So you can just, you know, l you know, someone doesn't even have to look at what ran. It's literally just there in the pull request for them to read as well. Mm. I think running... The, the concept of running Terraform from a pipeline is definitely a good one because you, then you know uh, why, when the Terraform was run, you know, who made the Terraform run rather than you know, having different people running it from their laptops, just having that central point where it's, where it's run from. You have different people running different versions of Terraform and stuff, you know, it's all, you know. You, yeah. Because um, you mentioned linting. Uh, can we go over what that is quickly? Because I don't know if I... You, this is have heard of that or what that means so linting is basically just kind of basic syntax checking so it's not going to check to see whether you've used say an aws module correctly 
but it will check the um I don't know, your variables are formatted correctly, you know, you're not missing an equal sign or you're not missing certain things. There is some linters that will go beyond that, so it will do more than just check, you know, uh, um, I'm not missing a, a comma or I'm not missing something like that. Um, it entirely depends on which check you're using. But there is ones that will lint your Terraform, and as I say, I'm pretty sure some of the ones out there will go beyond the basics but you know sometimes even catching the basics it'll stop you having to apply three or four times because you made a typo or something or you know missing um, an equal sign or a colon or something it also stops people having to uh, comment on your pull request that you've missed out a, a, a an equal sign or something like that exactly um, yeah and lets people get on with actually reviewing the code and what the code's doing yeah, it, it, it's more than anything. Almost like having a you know a, a little robot over your shoulder telling you, yeah, you, you you typed that wrong there, kind of thing. It's just you know it's in the pull request for you. What I would say though is if you if you're in the sort of environment where you keep getting those sorts of issues coming up from your developers, is that there's actually a thing called pre-commit that you can get. It's a set of scripts that you can add to your repository. Uh, and make it so that these things must will always run before you actually finish your local commit. So if you wanted to have it so that, you know, you must always lint your stuff first, um, you can get plugins and things like that for to, to basically check your what you're about to commit before it even leaves your machine in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And and just just to add to that, that's not specifically for Terraform as well. You can use it with it, it's got modules for all sorts. Like I use it for GoLang as well for making sure I'm not doing anything the wrong way on there. There is one caveat with pre-commit though, is that you tend to need to install it. So it's not a you don't you can still commit to a re- repository if you've not run all the pre-commit install commands in the first place. First time you've done that, great. But if you don't do that, people can still commit first. It doesn't. It's not like it. It's not a hard block. You got to have the linting on in your pipeline anyway. Uh, I guess to to, to enforce it. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose the good thing there is if you have it in the pipeline and people have already done that, then the linting job just goes, yeah, nothing to do. And it's, it still catches the people that haven't ran pre-commit install. But yeah, I'm a big fan of pre-commit myself and I use it on quite a few things. But yeah, as I said, just make, make sure people don't see it as the silver bullet because last place, there's quite a few people that just went, oh yeah, they've not installed that yet. That's why half of these problems are coming into our, say our puppet code or whatever. And just get yeah, it. Pre-commit would have caught that, but they didn't install didn't install it. I mean, I didn't know about pre-commit until someone told me at one place, and then when once I'd installed it and and it was checking my code, then my my um, pull requests all passed the all the tests. Yeah, <laughs> as if by magic. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of that. That's good. I have to look at that pre-commit. Um, I'll also put a link in the show notes. That, um, one of the guys work. There's a best practice for using Terraform from Google. Uh, which is quite an interesting document. We saw kind of what we've just been talking about, terror, different modules and naming conventions and stuff, which is quite an interesting read. Mm. So the last thing I just want to talk about, uh, we're going on quite a bit, is, thanks for all that, is about, I don't know if we talk about, I don't know if, if John was talking about this, is that public versus private endpoints, what do people think they should be using? So what I'm talking about here is that let's say you have a web app or i don't know like an api or something or function app uh, normally you'd give it a public uh, interface so there's like a public ip address but also you can have it where you have it if you've got 
your vnets or your vpc so that only in things inside can inside a network can talk to it i don't know and, uh, it, was, it got me thinking i think it might with you john he said that everything should be public kind of i don't know if it was with you or not being on the spot but uh, was it were you having a pre or after conversation about endpoints or I, mean, I heard on different podcasts that everyone should say because obviously with a, with a private endpoint oh it was it, it, it you yeah because obviously you've obviously get with a lot of things we're doing is private endpoints, but that's because we've got everything behind our firewall. And obviously, with private endpoints, is obviously you get there's more with with anywhere with Azure, you get kind of a more of a um, uh, expensive. It's much more expensive to have a private endpoint, whereas where the public, everyone in which you obviously you'd be locking them down anyway with like an API key or security. Yeah, it depends. So there's two kind of different schools of thought around this. Um, and and you'll have to excuse me a little bit because it's been a while since I've kind of looked at stuff like this. So so if I start if I start to waffle, it's because I'm racking my brains as to where that <laughs> content was coming from. I don't think I would ever say that you should have private endpoints being less secure than your public endpoints. Fundamentally, your the security of your application and your environment is as secure as the weakest part of it. There is a known set of vulnerabilities in things like WAFs called HTTP request smuggling, where you can make a request happen to one endpoint and then by injecting a unusual set of characters or making it too long or not providing enough detail where you can actually force your rendering engine whether that's uh you know a load balancer or a web server that's calling out to something else you can make it make a second request almost by accident there are issues with this all over the place i remember it from risky business podcasts two or three years ago at the very least where people were effectively requesting metadata from the metadata services in the various cloud platforms to determine things like, you know, have they all got the same SSH key, for example, or what is the name of the users that have been used to provision these accounts or these machines? So you have to be a little bit cautious about assuming that a private endpoint is more secure. It should never be treated as more secure. It should always be treated as insecure by default. That said, there are cases where having a private endpoint reduces the chance of something on the internet from being able to get to it. So in some ways, like you said, it's very much like if you, if you're not exposing this to the whole internet, then there's, then you have to be a degree of a way into your environment already before you can get to that thing. So for example, a good example of this is your microservices between whatever it is that, that works out where to send each of your microservice requests off to and the individual microservices themselves. They probably shouldn't be public because they should only ever be called from your application um, gateway 
Well, whatever that may be. Yeah. Obviously, there are always caveats to that. So, for example, it may be that you have got a, a unit testing, a testing framework that calls your microservices without going through the application load balancer to confirm that they're still serving valid data or they're load that you know the, the 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 health checks are there and things like that. So there's lots of kind of edge cases around them. I know that you can do things with some of the cloud providers will provide public uh, will provide private um, endpoints in those cases. Uh, so this is a, another good use case for private end, endpoint. If you have built your application to be private, so that is it doesn't have internet access uh, and you only access it over something like a bastion host that is in a public subnet that can then get into your private areas or if you've got um, something like uh, I don't know what the Azure equivalent is, if they've even got one, but like with AWS, you've got SSM, which will give you a console without it having to go over SSH, for example. And so your you could SSM into your bastion, which means it doesn't need to be on the internet, but you can then access all the things behind it in a private subnet. So in those cases, you would have a private endpoint for your web service for your cloud service operating environment and that then means that all of the communication between that endpoint and your infrastructure is all not going on the public internet which means there is no chance of it being intercepted or sniffed or you know broken by quantum computing you know 10 (laughs) 10 years down the line yeah at least not by anyone on the internet yes (laughs) And I know that there that several of the customers that I work with will explicitly build their environments with no internet access at all, and only ever access it over, you know, uh, they might have a VPC peering arrangement or a, you know, um, with something like Direct Connect or something like that. They might have they might have some infrastructure in place so that it's only ever accessible from their private networks. So yeah, fundamentally they both have use cases. There's nothing to say one is more inherently secure than the other, but it reduces your visibility and therefore reduces some surface area. I mean, endpoints and IP addresses are two different things, I think, but um, in AWS, for instance, EC2 instances are created without a public IP uh, by default, you have to do extra work to actually expose them to uh, traffic from the internet. I think private endpoint and public endpoint are slightly different in the context of AWS, um, though. Is that right? Yeah, sort of. So it, there's there's a fundamentally there's a difference between what what I have heard referred to as above the waterline and below the waterline. So the services provided by your cloud provider is all below the waterline stuff. And so they may expose services to you. And again, using AWS as an example, you know, your RDS database service, your SSM entry point into your environment, they are below the waterline public or private endpoints. 
if you're talking about the services that are running on the actual instances on your Microsoft, on your container environment, on your PaaS, those are above the waterline. And in that case, those public or private endpoints literally just refer to whether or not they are, so basically how visible they are to your environment. So you might have a private endpoint for your web application that will only respond if it's come from a specific IP address. It will only respond if it's got a specific set of HTTP headers. So can that be considered a private endpoint? Probably, because it's only replying to certain things. I don't know. As I said, it's there's lots of different ways of looking at the question. So ultimately, it's an, it depends. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the most known answer, especially when you start getting senior in your job, is it depends. You never say yes or no anymore anyway. So, yeah. Mm. Does does that help you, Al? No, that's good. I think we. Just, I know it was good. No, it was good discussion. I think we. I, know, I can't remember where we heard about it. We were talking about it, kind of pre or after show about it. I can't remember what we said. I thought it'd be quite interesting to kind of um, think what people thought about it. So, so I think it's time at the end of the show where we're kind of um, time to wrap it up. I think. Well, we do have one thing we need to talk about before we do that. Yep. Which is obviously this is episode ninety nine, which means. Unless something really goes fundamentally wrong with maths. <laughs> Our next show is going to be a big round decimal number, mm. which is 100. Three figures. So we thought we might like to do something to celebrate this fact. And we had a bit of a conversation in amongst the team to try and work out what, what, that, what that would look like. And we thought that maybe, just just maybe... We might like to invite some of you, dear listeners, to come and talk to us. Now, we've got a date that we, 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 we know we're going to do this. We have a time when it's going to start. Having seen some of these go on, on other podcasts, I don't really know how long it's going to run for. You're welcome to join us for as long as you'd like, provided we're still talking. And that is, we are going to be having a show on... December the 3rd, 2022. We couldn't have it any later than that because then one of our predictions would would, glad, would surely be would surely <laughs> be wrong. Um, and we're going to start at uh, 2100 UTC, which is 9 p.m. in the UK. Please feel free to check your local time zones. That's probably going to be something like 5 p.m. Eastern Standard, so the, the, the east coast of America, and something more akin to like, two three o'clock in the afternoon on the west coast of america if you're in the america and you want to talk to us uh it is a saturday the third of december uh, i try and work out the time zones going towards the west from the uk but uh, i'm i'm struggling a little on that one right now <laughs> um what i'll do is that we don't know what technology we're going to use to connect probably mumble or jitsi to do it if you go to abnab podcast at kdk 4-100 I, there will be a web page with all the details on it. Yeah, the community looking forward to 100 shows. Mm. It's good. Yes, we've gotten there. It's cool. Okay, so let's wrap it up then. So, 
Well, I'd like to thank producer Dave for our audio production. He he makes us sound really good every episode. So thanks for that, Dave. Um, also, uh, just to say that we're proud members of the Other Side Podcast Network. See otherside.network for more details about the network and other member podcasts. And um, thanks goes out to our Patreons who are Andamo, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, not me, and I'm not going to thank myself on this one. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. As always, if you want to uh, comment on anything we've discussed in this show, if you want to uh, suggest something you'd like us to talk about, or even if you just want to ask us uh, where we got our fantastic recording gear from, please feel free to contact uh, mail, M-A-I-L, admin admin podcast.co.uk don't worry that link is also on our show notes and in our website uh, we also have a telegram group as well if you want to come and join us and chat on there but and then if you want to ask us any questions maybe if you've got questions you're asking the 100 show get it in so um, ask us anything so okay okay thank you everyone and uh, we'll see you on episode 100 bye for now see you around bye bye been listening to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows at otherside.network <laughs>